Hello and welcome everyone to Westside Christian Church. Today, John Wade is bringing the teaching to you. So grab a Bible and join us as we study God's Word together. He was a man once so important and so influential that most called him a hero. But after he turned his backs on his brothers, most artists of his time period would go on to depict him in hell in their drawings. His name was Benedict Arnold. I'm sure that you've heard of him. Every school child when I was young was taught his story. The man who so nobly once fought and bled for the American cause turned traitor over promotions and money and pride. We learned about how Arnold plotted covertly with the British to surrender the fort at West Point with, without so much as raising a musket. And to top it all off, the man who would have betrayed his own soldiers fled before he could be captured and put on trial for treason. And he received from the British a full commission as well as a bounty for switching sides. And when the Revolutionary War ended with the signing of the Treaty of Paris, Arnold went to live in England, England where he died 18 years later. And he was regarded by the British with great uncertainty and by his former compatriots in America as one of the greatest villains and criminals of the war. Today, still, you'll hear people call someone who has betrayed them, someone who has turned their backs on them, a Benedict Arnold. Ever heard anybody called a Benedict Arnold? It's a terrible, pejorative type of name. We human beings tend to have a hierarchy of sin, don't we? We regard some sins as not so bad, maybe even normal, while others we treat with contempt but perhaps none more so than treason. Something about the nature of treason gets under our skin as human beings. We hate traitors, even ones that defect to our own particular side. We treat them as subhuman. The nature of treachery is so vile to us, so underhanded and devious, that we find it practically unconscionable. And we can see this not only with examples from our own history like Benedict Arnold, but from ancient history as well. In fact, as a society, we tend to remember the actions of various traitors very well and tell their stories over and over and over again. But perhaps another one of the most classic stories of treachery was from ancient times that we remember even the very day of a specific month and we recall it with great trepidation in literature and literary depictions many hundreds of years later. You ever heard the phrase, beware the Ides of March? You should have. It's a famous line from Shakespeare's Julius Caesar referring to the fateful day that Julius Caesar was assassinated by one of his inner circle. Well, many people actually stabbed him, but we remember one name in particular. One person from his innermost circle of people that he would have called his friends, 
Marcus Junius Brutus. Caesar was stabbed by Brutus and other leading men of Rome 23 times, according to some ancient accounts. And while we do not know Caesar's final words with absolute certainty because of variances in the ancient accounts, tradition tells us that his final words were to his one beloved friend turned traitor, Brutus, to whom he simply asked, Et tu, Brute? Meaning simply, You too, Brutus? Brutus, who at one point found himself on the wrong side of Caesar in a Roman civil war, who had been forgiven and pardoned by Julius Caesar, and had even been installed by Julius Caesar as governor of Gaul. He was even eventually nominated by Caesar to be the urban praetor, which was no small honor. Yet Brutus betrayed Caesar. And so bitterly has he been remembered by history as a traitor that in Dante's uh, epic poem, The Divine Comedy, Brutus is pictured in the inferno, in the deepest part of hell, the ninth circle of hell that is reserved for traitors. Brutus isn't merely residing in the ninth circle in Dante's depiction as other various traitors are pictured in torment there. No, Brutus has a special punishment. Brutus is one of three traitors mentioned by name who are being devoured feet first by Satan himself for all eternity. Pretty brutal, right? I don't want to get chewed on for the rest of my existence. We don't take kindly to traitors throughout history, but Dante mentions another traitor that I want to look at today, who I consider to be the greatest traitor and betrayer in all of history, Judas. Judas Iscariot, the one-time friend and follower of Jesus, the one entrusted with the ministry's money, relied on by the disciples and Jesus to keep the finances in order, and the man who we remember betrayed God in the flesh. And he did it all for 30 pieces of silver. Judas, the great betrayer of the Lord, and greatly do we revile him for it. In our artwork, in our poetry, our devotionals, we are swift to recall him, not entirely wrongfully, as one of the most wicked men of all history. Judas himself seems to think this even of himself after he receives his 30 pieces of silver and seeing Jesus condemned to die on the cross. I want to look at a passage of scripture. If you have a Bible, open up to Matthew chapter 27, verse 1 through 10. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be up on the screen. It says this, Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans uh, how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to, the, to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, uh, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? They replied. That's your responsibility. 
So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priest picked up the coins and said, It is against the law to put the, this uh, into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. Judas is so racked with guilt because of his betrayal that he believes what I believe is one of the greatest lies that Satan uses in his arsenal against us. God could never love you. God could never forgive you. God doesn't want anything to do with a traitor like you. And I'm going to tell you something that you don't hear from many preachers nowadays. I don't think Judas started out as a bad guy. I don't think he started out as a bad guy. I don't think he was all evil all the time. I think he was a man tormented by Satan day and night. I think that Satan spoke into this guy's ear nonstop, not audibly necessarily, but in all sorts of little ways, using fear and doubt to push and push and push until a foothold was created in his mind. And I think Satan spewed streams of discouragement into Judas' thoughts until his mind was full of negativity and selfishness and even self-loathing. As he began to believe the lie, God could never love someone like you. God can't forgive what you've done. You're a traitor. And God has no love for traitors. And I think we see evidence of the torment, the absolute war that was going on against Judas conducted by Satan in Luke chapter 22, verse 3 through 4. It says this, Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. Satan entered into Judas. That's a strange statement. Very strange. Totally unique in scripture. You don't see that anywhere else. It's obviously something that Satan can't do to just everybody. No, I think he had been whispering his lies to Judas for a very long time. And I think after all this time, that finally that foothold is created. He believes the lie so significantly that he's allowed to enter into Judas. And I think after his part in the betrayal is done, that Judas still doesn't get any relief from the lies of Satan. I think after all the ones that he had told Judas leading up to the moment of betrayal, I think that right after that, another one is whispered into his ear. You betrayed God. There's no hope for you. There's no forgiveness for you. God can't love you or forgive you. The only thing that waits you is death. So why not do it yourself? I think Satan begins to whisper in his ear, everyone in history is going to hate you for what you've done. 
You'll never have any friends. You can't go back to the Twelve. They'll never take you back. You think you'll have family among them? You think anyone will love you and accept you ever again? You'll be an outcast from those who once called you friend and family. You'll be an outcast from the people who you got money from because they don't want anything to do with you. You're a traitor. No one loves you, Judas. Lies kept coming, unmercifully accusing Judas and assailing him over and over and over again. There's no coming back from what you did. What you did is unforgivable. You're cursed and doomed because of your sin. And so Judas, in his despair, and listening to the lies of our adversary, Satan, went and did the only thing that he thought was left to him. He judged himself. He killed himself. Judas went and hung himself in a field that, interestingly enough, the priest went and bought unknowingly with the blood money that Judas had tried to return to them. And his body was left hanging in that field, knowingly or unknowingly, until his rotting, bloated body fell and split open in the field. And I know that's kind of gruesome. But you need to understand that because one of the lies of Satan that we're going to address next week is that the Bible is not true. It's not trustworthy. It's full of contradictions and errors. Satan tries to whisper in our ear that you can't believe the Bible because the Bible says that Judas hung himself in one place and in another place it says that he fell headlong and his body burst open. It's a contradiction. He tries to point different passages to us and confuse us. He uses the passage from Acts chapter 1 verse 18 through 19 which says this, With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field and there he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language a keldama, that is, field of blood. Atheists and others tried to say that Judas fell to his death according to the one passage, but hanged himself according to the previous one. So there's a contradiction. But let me ask you something. How many people do you know that died from just falling down in a field? Like, oops, I fell and died. Anybody? No. People might have had a heart attack and fallen down in a field dead. But how many people do you know that fell and split open from falling? I know that's kind of gruesome, but think about it. We know nobody that did that because it doesn't happen. The only explanation for that verse is that Judas' body hung in that field until the state of decay that it was in caused the rope to snap and his body fell and split open. There's no contradiction. Satan wants to confuse us and get us to disbelieve Scripture. And so many people have looked at that, not understood what was going on. It just takes a little bit of thinking about this. Nobody falls down and their body splits open from just tripping in a field. But we'll come more to Satan's lies about the Bible later on. Back to this one. Judas goes and he hangs himself because he feels he has no other option. He's so distraught, so 
unhappy, so hopeless that he believes nothing is left to him, that even God himself couldn't forgive what he'd done. You ever felt like that? You ever felt like Judas did? Oh, the preacher talks about forgiveness and grace, but he doesn't know the things I've done. He doesn't know the things I've said. He doesn't know how I've treated my wife and my kids and my friends. He doesn't know all the terrible things that have gone on in my life, and there's just no coming back from those things. Friends, I'm here to tell you today that that's a lie straight from the mouth of Satan. Satan, our adversary and accuser, wants you to think just like that. He wants you to think just like Judas did. He wants you to despair. He wants you to become so depressed and so distraught that you think no one could ever love you, especially not a perfect, holy, and good God. And furthermore, that this God could never forgive you. But guys, that is a lie. And the assumption behind the lie is so very dangerous. And it's one I want you to consider right now. The next time Satan whispers that into your ear. The assumption is that your sin is so great. Your sin is so strong, so powerful, so potent. That it exceeds the love and forgiveness of God. Think about that with me for a second. When you declare, God couldn't love me, he couldn't forgive me, what you're really saying is my sin is more powerful than God. That's prideful. Your sin is not more powerful than our loving, great, and mighty God. Your sin has been destroyed. It has been paid for. It has been atoned for by our God. The danger in our assumption that God's love isn't bigger than our sin, that it's not able to pierce the veil of our sin, it makes so very little of our omnipotent God, and it's a lie from hell. Your sin, no matter how great, the wrongs you've committed, no matter how terrible, are not and will never be greater than the love of Jesus and the power to forgive that is displayed on the cross. Your sin is not omnipotent. Your sin is not all-powerful. Your sin is not eternal. Your sin cannot overcome Jesus. No, Jesus overcame your sin on the cross once and for all. And if you will turn to him, if you will believe in him and trust in his power, there is nothing that he cannot and will not forgive. If you will trust him, in him, if you will throw yourself upon his mercy, there is nothing, absolutely nothing, no power in hell, no sin of mankind that could ever undo the power of Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. Satan wants you to believe that you are unforgivable that you are beyond Jesus' power to save. He wants you to believe it so you will lose all hope and be so hopeless that, quite frankly, you don't see any reason to live. 
and you follow in Judas' footsteps, Satan wants to kill you, not just in your body, but he wants to kill your soul. John chapter 8, verse 44 tells us that Satan was a murderer from the beginning. Since long before you and I came into this world, since long before time, before our thoughts, our experiences, before any of our history, Satan was a liar and a murderer. That means that he has had a long time to perfect his craft, to hone his way of doing things. He knows the easiest way to kill you is to have you do it yourself. Satan's lie is meant to make you hopeless. But guys, it's a lie. You have hope because of Jesus. There is nothing that his love cannot overcome. Even Judas himself could have and would have been forgiven by Jesus if he had just thrown himself upon Christ's mercy. Judas lost all hope. If he had just waited a few days and seen the risen Lord and thrown himself at Jesus' feet, can you imagine how different history would be? All of our depictions, our artwork, our comics, everything that we've ever done to portray Judas the betrayer be so very different, wouldn't it? Judas, chief of sinners, forgiven. Recipient of grace. Child of God. Saint. If we will simply trust in Jesus things can be different in our lives. We can have hope. And we have this hope because Jesus is alive and he is life itself. His forgiveness is greater in abundance than anything that we could ever fathom or comprehend. You have great hope because Jesus doesn't just die for you. He comes back to life for you. And he is coming back to this world again to raise you up into eternal life if you will simply trust in him. That is what faith is, my friends, trusting in Jesus. We make faith so complicated sometimes in Christianity. We make it into this metaphysical thing that we can't possibly comprehend or define, but that's incorrect biblically. We know what faith is. Our faith is the evidence of things hoped for but not seen. What is that? Trust. Trust. You can't see what you put your trust in, but you trust. This is what faith is. Trust. 
trust that Jesus is who he says he is, that he has done what he says he has done, that his sacrifice is enough to cover over your sin, to wash you clean, to make you new, and to give you new life. Friends, everyone gives their life to something or someone. Everyone does. Everyone chooses to give their lives to something or someone, a cause, an idea, a religion, a religious leader, a sport, whatever it is. Everybody chooses to dedicate their existence in some form or fashion to something or someone. Some people follow celebrities only to realize that they aren't who they appear to be on stage. Some people give their lives to their work, sacrificing their family, their friends, and their health, all in the hopes of achieving more prestige, more wealth, only to realize that these things are as fleeting as a wisp of fog in the morning sun. Some people dedicate their entire lives to themselves, only to find that they are more miserable than they have ever been in the end. And it has all been meaningless just as King Solomon discovered at the end of his life. And at the end of all of these endeavors is hopelessness. And Satan wants to try to fill your life with hopelessness. He wants to pump your life so full of hopelessness that you don't feel there's any way out. You don't feel there's any avenue of escape except one. He wants to kill you. Scripture tells us that he prowls like a lion. You ever seen National Geographic with the way that lions stalk their prey, waiting to kill? Satan follows you. He hunts us as human beings. And he has taught all those who follow him to do the same. We are hunted. And the greatest weapon, the greatest tool is not to attack us outright. No, no. That would strengthen our faith. No, the greatest weapon and tool is the subtle whisper. God doesn't love you. He could never love someone like you. Jesus loves you. We sing it as a child, Sunday school growing up, and I think it's one of the best songs that we ever invented for our children. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, they are weak, but he is strong. He is strong. Your hope is not in yourself. Your hope is not in another human being. Your hope is not in your wealth. It's not in the security that you may think it brings. It's not in some celebrity. It's not in some sport. It's not in your vocation. It is not in any of these things. Our hope as Christians is in our living God, Jesus Christ. Our hope is in him. And when it is in him, there is nothing, nothing and no one that can break us and destroy us. There is nothing that can make us hopeless. 
Do not let Satan snuff out your hope. Trust in who Jesus said that he is. Our shepherd. John chapter 10 verse 27 through 29 says this. Jesus' words. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. You see that? No one can snatch you from the father's hand. No one can take you away from the love of God. Even Satan himself has no power to take you from God. You have hope as a sheep. You have hope as a follower of Christ. This morning we're going to have a time of invitation. And this is a time of great hopefulness. This is a time where if you have believed that lie, it's time to stop. Don't trust Satan. Nothing that we know of Satan gives us any reason to trust him. Do not believe his lie. Your sin is not more powerful than the God who dies to save you from it. You can be forgiven. Doesn't matter what you've done, where you've been, what you've seen, what you've said. If you desire forgiveness, he will forgive. This is a time for you. If you are ready to be forgiven and to have hope and to know that love, now's the time. We're going to sing a song. And if you're ready to accept it, come forward. I'll lead you in the good confession, and we'll baptize you. And you can have that hope now. Why don't you come forward as we stand and sing? Thanks for joining us for the message today. If you would like more information about this and other teachings, or you'd just like to know more about Jesus, visit our website at wccjb.org or come visit us at 1405 Persimmon Ridge Road in Jonesboro, Tennessee. Check our website and Facebook page for service times. We hope you join us again and that we'll see you soon.